Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. You know, the Gallup poll since at least June 1999 has asked this question, quote, do you approve or disapprove of the way Congress has handled its job, end quote. This is the way the question has been answered from April 2020 to the middle of September, the time of the pandemic. So at the beginning of April, People said about 30% approved of what Congress is doing. Uh, another 66% disapproved. The rest just had no opinion. But just in August, which is a short, what, five to months later, August to September, that approval rating of 30% has dropped to 17%. And 80% disapprove. And there's still some that have no opinion. Well, you know, during the time the poll's been taken, the highest approval rating Congress has enjoyed is during the month after the 9-11 attacks, when their rating soared to, get this, 84% approval. It remained high for several moments after, several months after. And in the years that followed, the approval rate hovered in the 40% range and then took a dip during the collapse of the subprime mortgage market in 2007. In the aftermath of that financial disaster, the congressional approval rate languished in the 20% range until April 2020, when it momentarily soared into the 30% range as the government confronted the coronavirus. And then here we are, back into the approval rating doldrums similar to the subprime mortgage collapse of 2007. Not that surprising. What does it mean, though, when less than 20% of the population approves of their representation in government? Here's a good question. Are politics in America exhausted? Are we just out of gas? You know, that's been appearing more often in the press and various opinion columns. You know, but we've kind of long road since 9-11. People probably remember that 20 years ago, when President George W. Bush climbed on top of a pile of mangled wreckage that used to be the Twin Towers, put his arm around an elderly firefighter's shoulder and started talking through a bullhorn. Someone from the crowd around the wreckage shouted, I can't hear you. And the president replied, I can hear you, he declared. The rest of the world hears you. And the people, and the people that is, who knocked these buildings down, will hear all of us soon. The crowd reacted with loud, prolonged chants of, USA. USA. 20 years later, we're still in Afghanistan and Iraq, unable to extricate our soldiers from that morass. I've noticed, as perhaps you have, that more articles are appearing that just seem to call into question the legitimacy of our, uh, of our process. And when the vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, can claim that Senate confirmation of a Supreme Court nominee, according to the rules, is illegitimate. Something's very wrong with how we do politics. You know, people in liberal democracies, 
democracies that are popular based on popular vote, when they have so little faith in their governments, um, what do you make of it? And what do you make of such a low approval rate, but still these elections can generate such vitriol? It's not that people are indifferent, they're angry, but they're just not approving of how we are governed. You know, the present pandemic, I think we all agree, called for a rational, thoughtful response that was swift and effective. We have, we believe, some of the best medical personnel in the world. Science, however, as we all know, requires time and experience for them to understand what's happening in nature. People have complained about masks, social distancing, closing of businesses, suspension of athletics and other inconveniences, large and great, that we've all endured together. Did you know, however, that amongst all these complaints that the Center for Disease Control reported that since February, I think it is, in the United States of America, there have been 218,000 deaths from the coronavirus, um, regardless of what people said in the previous recorded period, there have only been about 34,000 people that died from influenza B. You don't hear that the coronavirus is no more deadly than the flu anymore, at least from, not from people who read the newspapers. But you know what else the CDC said that has gone by, I think, largely unnoticed? Out of those 218,000 218, yeah, 218, deaths, that 40% of them have been in nursing homes, it's true, I think, because of their age. We all know that people, the elderly, those in nursing homes, are more susceptible. But when it comes to a bureaucracy, a medical or a governmental bureaucracy, and a way of governing, where in their moral decision-making process, they apparently knowingly and intentionally put people infected with COVID-19 into a living environment in nursing homes where they knew that the population was uniquely susceptible. Are you comfortable with that? Are we our brothers and our sisters keepers in this country or what? You know, in the midst of all this, uh, there's personal tragedies, People are die, family deaths, and of course the presidential election. I thought it was noteworthy that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice of the United States Supreme Court, dying of, I believe, pancreatic cancer, a pretty deadly diagnosis, held on to her judicial seat to the very end, apparently hoping that time and a national election would bring a more favorable regime for this supposedly non-political branch of the government, the United States Supreme Court. Does anybody believe it's not political anymore? You know, the Senate should be given some credit, I suppose, that they passed over the joy of Catholic bashing in Judge Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing. No one repeated that idiotic line 
The dogma speaks loudly in you that Senator Diana Feinstein blessed our culture with. My favorite moment, and perhaps yours, was when after Judge Barrett rattled off a laundry list of relevant Supreme Court authority citations, one of the senators, a Republican, asked to see her notepad, where presumably she had written down all these citations. She held up a blank tablet. Can you imagine what a domestic disagreement might sound like with a mother of seven who has that kind of memory? She's a devoutly religious person, that's obvious, an academic, a judge, and a mother who opens her home and family to adoption. Whose image does Judge Barrett hope that she bears? Because that's what the gospel's about. The gospel, the riddle of what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. In the gospel, apropos of the Senate confirmation hearings, the Pharisees tried to entangle Jesus, setting a trap, asking whether it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. If Jesus answered yes, he'd be accused of being a Roman sympathizer. If he said no, he'd be accused by Romans of rebellion or sedition. Jesus responded, show me the money, or something like that. The Roman denarius is stamped with the face of Tiberius Caesar. Jews, of course, have an objection to graven images, and the inscription that's on that coin, we have copies of it, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, of course, in Latin. It's a blasphemous inscription in Jewish eyes, well, in Christian eyes and in Muslim eyes, too, to claim that this human emperor is God. Jesus ignored the blasphemy, interestingly, and instead asked, whose likeness and inscription is on it? Then he said, render under Caesar's what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. The coin was made by Caesar, but human beings are all made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis chapter 1. And that brings us to this. The idea of what it is that we owe Caesar in a secular republic that's based on the notions of liberty and equality. What are the duties of Catholic believers? What do we owe to Caesar? And what do we owe to God? Christians would answer that fraternity of love of neighbor is something we owe one another and God. The secular state says it's just dedication to liberty and equality. And you know, and that's why Pope Francis wrote his recent encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. He opened with these words from St. Francis of Assisi. Fratelli Tutti. With these words, St. Francis of Assisi addressed his brothers and sisters and proposed to them a way of life marked by the flavor of the gospel. You know, encyclicals like Fratelli Tutti, like almost everything human, they all, it all exists in a context. And without understanding the context, you often don't understand what's going on. How many times have you been involved in a discussion or an argument where you really didn't know what was pulling the trigger with the other person's uh, reactions to you? Well, so let's look at the context of this encyclical. The Holy Father explained the context of, of the uh, Fratelli Tutti uh, when he said that the issues of human fraternity and social friendship have always been a concern of mine in recent years. I've spoken of them repeatedly and in different settings. 
In this encyclical, I've sought to bring together many of those statements and to situate them in a broader context of reflection. And after that, he specifically referenced the, his, the historical context of this encyclical, and that is his recent meetings with world leaders, one an Orthodox Christian, the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, and the other two Muslims, one the crown prince of Abu Dhabi and the other the grand uh, imam of Al-Azhar, the most uh, important university in Sunni Islam. So here's the backstory, backstory to Fratelli Tutti um, in regard to his meetings with this Orthodox Christian and these two Muslims. First, Pope Francis, as have his predecessors, have been working to heal the schism between, the East, between Eastern and Western Christianity that's been going on for about a thousand years now. The Orthodox world is suffering a schism, however, itself between the Russian church and the Greek ecumenical patriarch. So even the Orthodox are breaking apart. In the West, the Protestant Reformation was our experience of schism. And so uh, ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, and that means is he's not the Pope, but he is a source of union amongst these autocephalous churches. An autocephalous church is a church like the Russian church or the Greek church, which is actually self-ruling. They work uh, not like the Western church does. They work on the synodal structure, which is, I think, one of the reasons that Pope Francis has been pushing the synodal structure here in Latin Christianity, so that we get used to the governments, the governance style of the East. Well, in any event, the schism in Eastern Orthodoxy between the Greek patriarch and the, and the patriarch of Moscow, the patriarch of, of Russia and formerly Ukraine, Ukraine, occurred when the patriarch of Moscow excommunicated Bartholomew, the ex ecumenical patriarch, because Bartholomew recognized the patriarch of Kiev, this is Ukraine, as a new autocephalous church without Russian agreement. The Russians didn't want to lose Ukraine, but Bartholomew rec recognized it as now a new Orthodox communion. And as you know, the Russians and the Ukrainians have been involved in nasty and deadly altercations over Crimea and eastern Ukraine. You cannot separate this from Russian aggression in the area. Well, Pope Francis publicly supported the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew after the Russian patriarch excommunicated Bartholomew by giving Bartholomew a relic from St. Peter's grave went right down under the altar, got a little bit of something, and gave it to Bartholomew. Uh, he, however, did not give a, a, a relic to the Russian patriarch. In, in fact, the Russian patriarch has refused to even visit Rome. Bartholomew's in and out of the Vatican whenever he feels like it. You know, the schism between East and West, now the schism within Orthodoxy, is a grave threat to Christian witness to our world at a critical time and evidences the consistent fraying of fraternity in Christian communion, and I would assert, under the dominance of the intentionality of uh, secular governments. And so 
enough about the Orthodox. Let's talk about how the Pope has also reached out to his Islam before putting out Fratelli Tutti. Did you know or did you read that the Pope met with the Grand Imam Ahmad al-Tayyab in Abu Dhabi, that's United Arab Emirates, where they signed a joint declaration entitled A Document on Human Fraternity for World Peace and Living Together. The they declared together that God has created all human beings equal in rights, duties, and dignity, and has called them to live together as brothers and sisters. Grand Imam Tayyab is the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, the oldest university in Egypt, and it's the center of Sunni scholarships. Did you also know he used to be a member of the Egyptian government and that he has been on the board of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt? Both of these have been uh, countries and organizations that the Pope has reached out to because they're so central to Sunni Islam. The signing of the agreement was, however, brokered by Abu Dhabi's crown prince, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nayan. Now, here's the other thing. So he's the ruler of the United Arab Emirates, or at least the leader. He as a gesture of fraternity following the signing of that declaration between the Pope and the Grand Imam. Did you read that he sent financial aid to Peru, a Catholic country, as a sign of fraternity with brothers suffering, brothers and sisters suffering under the pandemic? And did you read that recently they signed something like a peace accord with Israel where they recognize Israel's existence, which has always been the the hobgoblin of Jewish-Arab uh, relations. And so the United Arab Emirates and Jewish Israel are exchanging ambassadors. Well, that seems important to me. And it's something about this expression of fraternity. And so when the Pope starts this document to us that references this work amongst the Orthodox and Islam, let's pay attention to what has been bearing fruit so now here's the thing. Fratelli Tutti was composed in this context of the Pope building bridges, because that's what it means to be the pontifex. That's a bridge builder. At the heart of the Pope and bridging gaps is this Christian ideal of fraternity. It's really an ideal that comes to us out of the Old Testament. But Jesus emphasizes this in when he emphasizes the love of neighbor. The Pope, after talking about bridge building, then begins to talk about some of the problems amongst Latin Christians, which is mostly the West, and reminds Western liberal secular de democracies of the fundamental human importance of fraternity. So here's what he wrote in paragraph 103. Fraternity is born not only of a climate of respect for individual liberties or even of a certain administratively guaranteed equality. Fraternity necessarily calls for something greater, which in turn enhances freedom and equality. What happens when fraternity is not consciously cultivated, when there is a lack of political will to promote it through education and fraternity, through dialogue, and through the recognition of the values of reciprocity, reciprocity and mutual enrichment. Well, liberty becomes nothing more than a condition for living as we will, completely free to choose 
to whom or what we will belong, or simply to possess or exploit. This shallow understanding has little to do with the richness of liberty, directed above all to the call of love. So what happens if you take uh, American political philosophy, and instead of looking at it through the lens of liberty and equality, you look at it through the lens of fraternity? What do you see? And so here's what the Pope talks about. He talks about the year 1789, the year of the French Revolution, which in an important way is at the ideological root of liberal Western government political philosophy. The French Revolution proclaimed that its goals were famously liberty, equality, and fraternity. When Catholics spoke of liberty, they meant freedom to live in God's world ordered towards love. The Enlightenment and other secular governments meant freedom from governmental intrusion into various areas of our lives. And this has led America to the abortion regime and the throwaway culture. For Catholics, equality meant that rich and poor, the unborn child with Down syndrome, and the Harvard scholar were equal in God's eyes. For the revolution, equality meant equality before the law enforced by the state. George Orwell's famous criticism of political equality and liberal democracy was um, uh, set forth in his uh, little story, Animal Farm. Quote, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others, end quote. The Holy Father means something far more when fraternity informs equality and liberty. Imagine equality and liberty as political ideas if their purpose was to live out the reality of brotherly love. Catholics, although they may not always feel the love, at least know that they're supposed to love their neighbor. Their brothers and sisters, the bishops of Arizona, called all of us to exercise our rights as citizens with an understanding of fraternity. We should do so with an intention to care for the common good by following a properly formed conscience. The price human community pays when individual freedoms like liberty and equality are emphasized at the expense of fraternity is, as the British political philosopher Thomas Hobbes argued, the war of all against all, that is, the state of nature. That was in his book Leviathan, written in the 17th century. What the French and other political thinkers rejected about fraternity as a political idea was it smacked of being religious. What the Enlightenment, according to Pope Francis, presented the Western world was a politics dominated by individualism and consumerism, threatened, threatened by increasingly controlling central governments and bureaucracies, reflecting the deep divisions and sometimes hostilities of the citizenry inflamed by irresponsible media. In short, if everything's about my freedoms against your freedom, there's always going to be a fight. And when you look around America and you ask what equality means, people know that the equality is really dependent so much on who you are. All you have to do is look at the number of deaths in nursing homes how we treat the unborn, how we act towards people on the border, what we think of those on death row, how we deal with just fill in the blank. The Pope in Fratelli Tutti reminds us 
in the New Testament, all roads lead to the book of Genesis. When the Lord in the gospel this Sunday reminds us of the creation of the human in Genesis, that is, that we bear the image of our creator, please remember the story a couple chapters later about Cain and Abel. Do you remember? God asked Cain after he murdered Abel, where's your brother Abel? He answered, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Genesis chapter four. Given the disproportionate effect of this pandemic on the vulnerable and the open hostility of our brothers and sisters to each other in this political season, how do we Catholic citizens of America answer our Creator's question?